Hello, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to the Good Good Judgment Judgment Podcast. Podcast. Hello, folks. Welcome to another session of the Good Judgment Podcast. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. In other episodes, we have discussed that there is no such thing as trial tax. In other words, going to trial. Trial tax. Bad, bad. Trial tax, bad. Um, Where a judge automatically imposes a more harsh sentence for the defendant just because the defendant goes to trial and is found guilty of a crime. That's right. People refer to that sometimes by that little moniker, trial tax. Now, to be clear, if the defendant rejects a plea offer and then goes to trial, The trial judge is not somehow bound or limited by the sentence that can be imposed because the judge is aware of the plea bargain. That's not that's that's not a prohibition. It's just that you can't automatically or have some policy where if you reject the plea offer, you are automatically going to be sentenced more harshly. Yeah, that's right. Yeah, that's right. I mean, uh, the judge can announce that if a plea offer is rejected, that a more severe penalty would be imposed after the trial. And and, and in point of fact, we shouldn't be involved in any of those discussions and negotiations anyway. Um, The judge may find that a defendant failed to accept responsibility for his or her actions, and that can be considered as part of the um, sentence to be imposed. But the judge can't simply announce that, look, if you go to trial, you're going to get the maximum or you're going to get a you're going to get a harsher penalty than what the state's offering you here. Yeah, that's the trial tax. And that's the thing we avoid. But Tane, now we have discussed that that any time a judge has discretion to do something and make some sort of policy or announcement or practice that they just simply refuse to ever, for example, grant first offender uh, sentence in burglary cases. I'm just coming up with something off the top of my head. That's actually an abuse of discretion. When you have the discretion and you don't use it or refuse to use it, that's also an abuse of discretion, right? Yeah, I mean, you have to at least consider using it in every single case because every case is fact specific. And so you can't just say, well, as a general rule, I'm not going to do this because that is a failure to exercise the discretion that you have. Um, So what we're going to discuss today is essentially this idea of retaliation and sentencing. Right, Wade? That's right. And and we keep running... (laughs) Let's just jump in and and let's explain it because it sounds sort of ominous, I think, as a title. Let's jump in as a general rule. And we've got some citations in our outline that people can find. Where, Tane? At goodjudgepod.com. But we have some citations to exactly what is talked about, about a trial tax. And that includes the West case. It's actually in a statute because it says a trial judge fixing a sentence after a guilty verdict must prescribe a sentence for a specific number of months or years. We knew that. That must be within the minimum and maximum period prescribed for the punishment of crime. We know that. But tell them what the Uniform Superior Court rule says about the trial tax, Tang. Sure. So uh, Uniform Superior Court Rule 33.6B, that's the specific uh, paragraph and section that uh, deals with trial tax, says the judge should not impose upon a defendant any sentence that is in excess of that which would be justified by any of the rehabilitative, protective, deterrent, or other purposes of the criminal law merely because the defendant has chosen to require the prosecution to prove the defendant's guilt at trial rather than to enter a plea of guilty or no low contendere. So we, we, we're real clear on that. Now, let's do the big old but. But. I don't mean like the big old, well, you know what I meant. Yeah, I like 
I like big butts and I cannot lie. It is not air. Wow. It is not air for the trial judge to imp- impose a greater sentence on a defendant because he's heard the evidence in trial that he might have imposed in conjunction with a guilty plea. And there is a whole list of cases cited. We don't want you to think that you could never, uh, somehow you are bound by the terms of some plea agreement that was rejected because you're just simply not, right, Ting? That's correct. Now, we give you all kind of of citations, et cetera, but that's not even really what we're here to talk about, Tank. We're really here to talk about vindictiveness. If I was, if I right. was a better speaker, I wouldn't use retaliation. I would use vindictiveness because that's one of the things that the law has always been afraid of, I think is the right way to say it, and tried to avoid is judges being vindictive in sentencing because – you have rejected a plea offer because you've gone to trial and exercised your rights. The judge being vindictive is prohibited. The judge taking all factors into account and imposing the sentence that's appropriate for all the purposes of, of criminal law, that's appropriate, correct? Right. Yeah, and and what we're really talking about here is, for example, and this is where it comes up frequently, is Case goes up, judge imposes sentence, goes up on appeal at the appellate levels. For some reason, somehow the judge gets reversed, and then it comes back to the trial court for purposes of resentencing. Yep. That's where this frequently pops up. And for whatever reason, there's you know the perception that the judge is angry or upset about having been reversed or having to resentence the defendant for some reason. And what the court in West has said is that when, when a harsher sentence is imposed, it says, In imposing a harsher sentence following trial, the trial court is, quote, merely following through on the inevitable and permissible threat, which is implicit in any plea bargain situation, that rejection of the plea bargain may diminish or destroy the very rationale for the imposition of a lenient sentence. So what the court is trying to say there is, look, you know, you can't come back trial court and and impose a, a, a penalty just because, as we said, he didn't take that uh, opportunity to take a, um, a plea bargain. So so we've spent this episode so far telling everybody what we're not talking about, Tane. So let's talk about what we are talking about, what this whole rehabilitation thing is all about. And you touched on it a minute ago, the factual scenario that we wanted to focus on today. And to be honest, this came from a listener, Tane. It was an mm-hmm. I request. Mm-hmm. We love a that. shout out or a request or we, we ought to have one of those phone lines like you used to call to ask to listen to the BGs, you know, staying alive on the radio. I don't know what you're talking about. Wayne. You listen to the BGs, you liar. <laughs> um, the factual scenario we wanted to discuss is the case going up on appeal It's reversed for some reason. And what sentence can be imposed? Now, Tane, do we need to do a disclosure here? As to what, as to you and I? What, that we've never been reversed, either one of us? Yeah, right. We've a perfect 1,000 batting average. 
No, Tane. The opposite <laughs> is true, and you know it. That is true. We've both been reversed on more than one occasion, and we've both had cases remanded where we had to resentence someone. And, you know, it's usually things – I mean, I, I'll admit I've had a couple of cases where there was a merger issue that either we didn't catch or, you know, we, we thought we merged it the right way, but we merged it the wrong way or whatever, and I've had cases come back. And, you know, in those circumstances, you you, you know, you have to resentence the defendant and come up with – the appropriate sentence under the circumstances. So there are vast differences between what can happen following a remand or reversal. It really depends on what the direction is from the appellate court. Sometimes it's simply to re-sentence the defendant, or some reversals require a retrial of the whole case, or, or, or they're, they're different directives. So we're not going to talk about all of those different directives of what to do post post-reversal and I think that was really what the listener asked for was tell me what am I supposed to do now that I've gotten a case reversed. But I thought that this topic, especially in criminal law, we really needed to spend some time with because I think that there is maybe a lack of understanding or a lack of recognition that it's an existing thing. So, Tane, I know you're the law guy here in our group and you, you like the origins of law. Tell Tell the folks – what sort of constitutional provision all this is sort of rooted in in this vindictiveness thing? Yeah, I mean, it, it, there's a there's an Eighth Amendment implication to all of this, a cruel and unusual punishment. And um, if there's another constitutional provision Wade wanted me to talk about, it, I can't find it in the notes. So, <laughs> so it is basically in due process, Tane, in that Alabama oh, okay. v. Smith case. But that may you. have been too obvious for you. Well, the problem is that you printed this in a much smaller font than I would normally like, and I'm having trouble reading it. <laughs> Are you really? Yeah. No, I don't see. It's okay. Go ahead. Never mind. Alabama v. Smith was decided in 1989, and that following a successful appeal, if the second sentence, and that's the way we're going to talk about it today, the second sentence or the subsequent sentence. The resentencing. Imp- yeah, the resentence imposed by the judge is more severe than the first sentence that the judge had imposed before the appeal, that there has to be some evidence in the record that something additional was learned by the judge to justify that second sentence being imposed. If there are no aggravating circumstances that came to light before that second sentence was imposed, there is a presumption tain of vindictiveness. Yeah, and, and think about that. It kind of makes sense. I mean, if you impose, let's say, a 20-year sentence on the, the first time around and the case goes up, it gets remanded. Let's say there was just some sort of uh, you know procedural glitch uh, that caused it to be remanded and they say you've got to reimpose a sentence. This, the same crimes you know, are, are at issue and you impose a 30-year sentence. The presumption is that since nothing's changed, you're just being vindictive because you had the same circumstances in front of you and you imposed a harsher sentence. And that kind of makes sense. Now, the opposite, though, is 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 also in place. And that is if um, something has changed, if there's additional evidence that's available to you, um, then perhaps there's a reason for changing that sentence and making it harsher. Yeah, there's got to be something in the record. And, and Georgia adopted this Alabama v. Smith rationale and, and, and process in a case called State v. Hudson. I think it actually existed before 2013, but in Hudson it clearly did as of 2013. And I want to state this plainly and kind of quote the language from Hudson. Um, Reading law 
during a podcast is not awesome. But Tane, sometimes the quote really helps everybody understand. And and this is the quote to prevent such fear of retaliation from deterring defendants in the exercise of their appeal rights. The Supreme court held that vindictiveness will be presumed whenever a more severe sentence is imposed after a retrial or remand. And that to overcome this presumption, the reasons justifying the increased sentence must affirmatively appear, their words, and be based on, quote, objective information, end quote, in the record, identifying conduct on part of the defendant that justifies the the other sentence. So that's in Hudson at 657. But, Tane, you know, the devil, it's always in the details. Yes, it is. The court in Hudson also asked an even more basic question. After citing all the different U.S. Supreme Court rulings, which have clarified this concept of vindictiveness, the Hudson court noted, however, nowhere in this jurisprudence has the court prescribed particular method for determining whether a subsequent sentence is in fact more severe than the first. This case presents us with the opportunity to reassess our approach to this issue. Folks, we'll be right back after this pause for station identification. Folks, this is Wade and Tane. You're listening to the Good Judgment Podcast on the World Wide Web or wherever else you listen to these things. As always, you can find outlines for these podcast episodes as well as any supplemental materials on our website, which is goodjudgepod.com. We'd love to have your feedback about the podcast, and we get that at our email, goodjudgepod at gmail.com. We're always looking for suggested podcast topics. Please feel free to submit your suggestions to us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com. Operators are standing by. And remember, if you like what you're hearing, don't forget to like us and follow us on your favorite podcast platform and tell your friends it's how we get to grow our listenership. Thanks. And now back to our studio audience. So to understand this, and and we're going to revisit our old friend, Tane, merger. Merger. We ought to do that as a sound effect. Merger. We should. Uh, Anyway. Merger. uh, let me let me just lay out the facts of this case, because if you don't understand the facts, you don't understand the problem. Following a jury trial, Claude, Claude Wayne Hudson was convicted of one count of aggravated sexual battery and one count of child molestation. On the aggravated sexual battery count, Hudson was sentenced to life in prison with 25 years in confinement, remainder to be served on probation. On the child molestation count, Hudson was sentenced to 30 years in prison with 10 years in confinement, remainder probated. The sentences were to run concurrently. Here's where we're going to find some of this really, some of the confusing parts, concurrent, consecutive. On appeal, the Court of Appeals held that the two convictions should have merged, our buddy merger, vacating the sentences and remanding the trial court for resentencing. So on remand, the trial court resentenced Hudson on the child molestation count to a term of 30 years with 25 years to be served in confinement, confinement remainder probated. Hudson appealed again, contending this sentence was actually more severe than his initial sentence and thus was presumed to be have been motivated by trial court vindictiveness. Now, let me just recap. On the child molestation count initially, he had been sentenced to 
10 years in confinement, confinement, remainder probated, 30 years total. On remand, he gets 30 years with 25 to be served in confinement, balance probated. So the the second the second sentence for that offense, Tane, was more harsh, and therefore he filed that appeal. So, Tane, tell the folks about what Georgia law had been prior to Hudson about the count-by-count count approach. Sure. So, and and to me, this was a little weird. Uh, I mean, I guess I understand how they employed it or, or arrived at it, but Georgia had previously employed a count-by-count count approach when reviewing a sentence for vindictiveness. And what they would do in that circumstance was look at each count individually and compare the initial sentence imposed for that count against the sentence imposed for the count at resentencing. And if the judge imposed any sentence for any count of the indictment that was more harsh than the judge imposed initially, imposed initially, then the presumption arose. However, in Hudson, the court acknowledged that there, the, there was another more proper analysis that they called the aggregate approach as opposed to the count by count approach. Instead and of comparing, yeah, this just makes this a lot of this sense. This makes a lot more sense. And, and I'll say why, just so everybody understands it before you explain it. When you have a situation like this one where initially you were sentencing on two counts and now there's a merger and you're only sentencing on one count, you don't have available the same sentence that you thought you had available initially. So tell them what the court said. And it's funny you say that because the the Supreme Court sort of acknowledged that probably in, you know, better better language than you and I typically use. We're not we're not of that ilk, but instead of comparing the sentences count by count, the court is, does, is says that instead we should look at the total original sentence as compared to the total sentence following resentencing. And they reversed decades of precedent in this, and there were lots of dissenting opinions, to be fair. Yeah. But the court said, and this is, Tane, this is kind of what you just said, that judges, when they impose sentence on different counts, which are all based upon a single course of conduct, typically fashion the sentence collectively or in the aggregate an account-by-count analysis does not consider the overall sentencing scheme that the judge deemed appropriate initially. Yeah, and, and I would go a step further than that in, in a practical sense. We always look at it in the aggregate. I mean, you, you'd kind of be remiss if you were just looking at each count individually and not considering what the overall sentence was. I mean, and because think about it, you have to decide whether to impose the sentences concurrently or consecutively, and you have to look at what you're doing on a global basis in order to arrive at the appropriate sentence by doing that. Not to turn this into a bees in our bonnet episode, but, you know, when you get those sentences that have, if you have a firearms, a mandatory five, it must be consecutive. Well, sometimes that impacts how you want to impose the other sentence for the, I guess, primary crime, because you're trying to reach sort of a an outcome, I guess, or, or like they said, an, an overall appropriate sentence. So Tain, Let's call let's let's talk about a couple of hypotheticals. So let's let's start off with a case that involves sex cri- sex crimes against minors. The conduct was indicted in a way that involved multiple charges of child molestation, sexual battery, aggravated child molestation, etc. Unfortunately, a, a recurring theme in a lot of our courts. Right. After applying merger principles, let's assume the judge imposed a sentence that results in 30 years in prison followed by 20 years on probation. Of course, Tane, you know about 6.2, right? Sure, it's got to be a split sentence, Wade, if it's a, a sex crimes case. 
But only in certain that, that states, crimes that's not aggravated right. that don't have life as a potential sentence, right? Right. So under this hypothetical, assume that in a, on appeal, it's determined that the evidence did not support the aggravated child molestation count of the indictment, for which the judge originally sentenced the ju- the defendant to 29 years to serve with one. Well, I think that that's actually a bad example because I think you have to have life on probation. But my my hypothetical was 29 in, one out. So now the case gets remanded for sentencing. So Tane, run through what what might have happened in this hypothetical on resentencing. Sure. So the case gets remanded for sentencing, and at the resentencing, the judge knows that she is essentially capped at 30 years to serve, followed by 20 years on probation. Those are the maximums that form the parameters of the previous sentence. After deliberation, the judge continues to believe that 30 in, 20 out is the appropriate sentence. Based upon the surviving counts, the judge needs to change the sentence on one count of child molestation from 20 years consecutive probation to a sentence of 10 years in confinement, one on probation consecutive to the other counts. So under that account by account analysis that had been the law in Georgia before Hudson, that presumption of vindictiveness vindictiveness would apply and, and barring some other evidence having been introduced. It could not be rebutted by any information in the record because there wasn't any information in the record. So as noted as recently as 2020, I guess, in that Cobb v. State, and that's a Georgia appeals case, they've noted and, and sort of reinforced that this aggregate principle is the applicable principle in Georgia. So now, Tane, this is probably – I probably um, previewed this a few minutes ago. One more th- hypothetical, but this is where I see this kind of issue arising more often than not, that possession of firearm count and any count in which must which is required by law to be consecutive and can't be probated. Right. So as we discussed, yeah. Tane, we've, we've, we've talked about this, you know, endlessly when we talked about parties entering into a plea agreement and they don't really help me figure out, okay, this count must be five years. It must be consecutive. How am I going to work this into your seven in, five, you know, three out plea agreement? You know, how do we do that, right? Right. And I don't want to digress and kind of get lost on my, again, my, my rant. But under this hypothetical, we have a case that is remanded for sentencing for whatever reason. And the judge is faced for, with a situation where there are mandatory minimum sentences or mandated consecutive sentences that just simply don't fit with that original sentence that has now been remanded. So, Tane, let's talk about some of the judge's choices there. Sure. Under this scenario, the judge is going to have to make some choices, um, such as either to reduce the original sentence imposed to fit the surviving counts or find himself or herself in a vindictiveness analysis during the second appeal, which follows the entry of a sentence that was greater than the original sentence. So, so yeah, what would you do, Wade? Well, in my mind, and I, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, I would I would probably note the issue at the time of the Absolutely. second sentence so that everybody Absolutely. knows I get it. Yep. And then reach back to an earlier part of this episode note where we noted that the evil that the law was attempting to address in this whole vindictiveness arena is the judge punishing the defendant for exercising the right to appeal. I would sort of put that on the record that I that's not what I'm doing and I understand that that law is out there. 
yeah, just address the elephant in the room on the record and say, this isn't what I'm doing. There's a dilemma here that has to be overcome because of the way that this case has come back to me in in this circumstance. And, and these cases have said the fact that the defendant receives a greater sentence is really not the issue. The issue is the motivation for that sentence, I guess. Right. And so and remember, this is a presumption of, of vindictiveness so it can be overcome by the things that get put on the record essentially and those some of those things might be the judge's mindset at the time of resentencing right so if the judge remains convinced that that original sentence was the appropriate amount of confinement but doesn't have the right counts left to make that happen and following this remand that that allow the judge to sort of fashion that same sentence again Put that on the record, sentence accounts that have to be consecutive, et cetera. And I will tell you that we have cited some cases in the outline that you can find at goodjudgepod.com that, that specifically point out that that is permissible, that that does not violate the vindictiveness provision. Now, Tane, there's an easier option, and you, you can always do that too, right? Yeah, I mean, of course, you could uh, reduce the original sentence to fit the surviving crimes. I mean, just just kind of say, look, that's what I thought was the right sentence, but given where I am, it's I'm just not going to die on that hill. Yeah, and you're just kind of sidestepping the issue of vindictiveness by saying I don't have the ability to make that sentence this time, so I'm going to do something else. So, Tane, let's recap what we've learned today. Isn't that did Doc, did Mr. Rogers say that? <laughs> I don't think Mr. Rogers ever said that. Well, he's putting on his sweater or whatever. <laughs> Anyway, right. we do so, reco- we do not recognize any form of the phrase trial tax. That's not something that's a part of our life, regardless of what you call it. You agree? Yes, absolutely. The law clearly allows judges to impose any sentence that is within the statutory framework for that crime. The law even recognizes that a sentence imposed after a trial can be more harsh than that was that was offered as a part of a plea bargain that was rejected. Um, but don't use the phrase trial tax um, or anything like that because those are just bad, unacceptable words. Those are bad words. Bad words. To use your good words. If a case is reversed or remanded and the trial judge is required to re, I guess reimpose a sentence, there is a presumption of vindictiveness. We learned that today. And that second sentence, if that second sentence is more harsh than the one originally posed, imposed. Right. Uh, no longer following a count-by-count approach. Uh, we are, the appellate courts will review the sentence in the aggregate. And, and really, that's the way you ought to look at it, too, when it comes to you. Look at what was my aggregate sentence originally. How does that fit into the framework of the sentence that I'm now trying to fashion? But I will say this, when imposing that second sentence, make sure that you are aware of this presumption of of vindictiveness and use that prior sentence as a cap. You can go over it if you don't have the same counts left, but you need to explain it. Unless, of course, you have some sort of additional information that's presented that would somehow negatively impact your view of the defendant's conduct, like at a retrial where we, uh, you know, we don't wish that on anybody, but and and I think that's important to point out. If you're just resentencing, in other words, if the case just gets remanded to you because you missed a merger issue or you know there was something else with respect to the sentence, you're probably not taking additional evidence there. 
And so, I mean, I, I can't imagine a circumstance where I would say, okay, state, what's your additional evidence in aggravation? And okay, defendant, what's your additional ag- uh, evidence in mitigation? You're really just resentencing. And so you need to be careful there because the caps are going to apply that you have established by the original sentence. So, folks, as always, we hope this has been helpful to you in your daily practice. If you'd like any more information, don't forget to check our website at goodjudgepod.com, where we're going to post these episode notes, including all these citations of authority. We also need to take a moment and thank our listener. I, I, I guess it could be listeners, but only one person. We do have one more than one, don't we, Tane? Last time I checked, my mom was still listening. So, yeah, we're good. My mom, too. So that's two. Yeah. See, there's for right suggesting there. a discussion of what we ought to, uh, the, the question was, what should we do upon a um, remand or reversal? And I realized we didn't address, I mean, that, that topic could go on and on and on because it could be anything from a, a pretrial ruling to a complete retrial. So I don't think we can probably address that all the way to the ground. But we did attempt to nibble around the edges a bit, but we just didn't address it all nibble around the edges is that something your grandmother shared with you nice. what are we talking about here anyway uh be sure to follow the good judgment podcast on your favorite platform and to like us um, i think it really matters but for just now i'm not sure how but it does make me feel good inside and nice and warm and all of that um it's it's nice to be liked I mean, five stars is better than four stars Yes, amen. Well, with all of that disclosure and deep-seated concern about how many friends you have, let's wrap up today's episode. I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Vindictiveness is just wrong. Well, folks, that's all we have for another exciting and enthralling topic here on the Good Judgment Podcast. Thank you for listening to the Good Judgment Podcast. This project was the brainchild of Mr. Doug Ashworth, the executive director of ICJE. Thanks and appreciation to the entire University of Georgia College of Law for assisting in our recording. Thanks to Mr. Stephen Turner and his company, Turner Up Media, who helped edit out some of our stupidity and awkwardness. But nobody can get it all. Tane and I are eternally grateful to the Council of Superior Court Judges who allow us to lead new judge orientation for the Superior Court Judges across Georgia. Thanks to our NJO graduates who've been willing to help with this podcast series. You know that these are our opinions and they do not reflect the opinions of ICJE, CSCJ, the University of Georgia College of Law, or anybody else for that matter. You can contact us at goodjudgepod at gmail.com for any praise, but please contact someone else with any complaints. But seriously, we would love to have your feedback, both good and bad. Send any comments to goodjudgepod at gmail.com. You've been doing a great job doing that. We really appreciate the help. You can also visit our website at goodjudgepod.com for outlines and more details about our podcasts. Once again, I'm Wade Padgett. And I'm Tane Kell. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to the Good Judge Mint Podcast.